Bottom of the leagues, 14th, 15th, 16th and 18th all pick up points. A nightmare for Vagalta Sendai then, as the only team in the bottom five not to collect anything from the weekend. Elsewhere, there's still no stopping Frontale and likewise Fukuoka 2, who take top spot away from Tokushima in the J2. And there's good news for women's football as more details about the new professional league's first season get released. Lots to get through then on this week's episode of Japan Soccer Weekly. Hello and welcome to Match Day 22. With so much going on this weekend, it's difficult to know where to start. So to make it easy to ourselves, we're going to start right at the top. This means who else but Kawasaki Frontale and their tremendous season continues. I thought before kickoff that Nagoya Grampus could have been a potential banana skin for Frontale with Nagoya on relatively good form as of late. It's fair to say though that if Frontale had any nerves about extending their impressive run, it didn't really show. On a rather muddy looking field, Nagoya carved open the best chances in the early exchanges, Matthias trying for the spectacular on the half hour mark. But it was only a little later after that, Frontale's Tanaka Ao pulled his shot disappointingly wide of the post in what could have been one of the moves of the season. If that had found the back of the net, the build up play for that would have been in compilations for years to come. Some lovely two touch passing moving the ball around nicely and it made it look like a training match in times. Finally though, Kawasaki Frontale got the break they needed. Uh, Just before the the first half came to an end, they tapped in at the back post from a corner. Nagoya were again undone by another set play just after the break too, a very unlucky deflection this time diverting it past the keeper for an own goal. Kawasaki were in their stride then, with more slick passing and fancy flicks, leading to the near misses, but delighting the fans in the meantime. As if inevitably, despite some resolute defending, it was a third set play that led to Frontale's third and final goal. Lethal set plays, and in particular being first to the ball in the air, was how Frontale took control of this game, and gave them a scoreline that was perhaps a little harsh on Nagoya. Still, With Grampus inflicting the only defeat of the season so far on Frontale earlier on in the campaign, this revenge would have felt great for the Frontale team and they continue their march to the title. Elsewhere in J1 then, it was business as usual for Cerezzo with their 4-1 thrashing of the Marinos. A brace for Okuna and Toyokawa, giving them a 4-0 lead until the very last moments of the game, Perhaps a lack of clean sheet being the only disappointment for them from that game. Celeso have been up and down in their form a little bit lately, so this was a big win for them, and they'll look to try and keep this momentum going. FC Tokyo, and I've been saying in recent weeks that their position in the league kind of flatters to deceive, having played two games more than any of their competitors. They suffered an unexpected 1-0 defeat thanks to a late goal from Kusano in the 88th minute. Tokyo's form is up and down lately as well and I wouldn't be surprised now to see them start to drop off a little bit from the top of the table over the next few weeks. Something to support this is the incredible form of the team below them in 4th place, Gamba Osaka. That's 8 in a row now for Gamba whose 1-0 victory against Oita Trinita 
may have been far from secure, but Gamba have been great at grinding out those important results this season. After this though, it's time to turn the attention to the bottom of the league and in particular, arguably this weekend's biggest losers, Vigalta Sendai. Sorry Vigalta, but not only did every other team around them pick up points, but their 6-0 defeat to Urawa Reds completed a miserable day for the visitors. Three goals in the first half and three more in the second made for a very comfortable day for the home side, but puts on a bit of pressure for a team now who haven't won in 14 attempts. Vidalta have been picking up draws here and there, but their lack of a win in such a long time must be really worrying and probably playing on the minds of the players now. Above them, Consadole Sapporo pulled off a small shock by defeating 6th place Kashima Antlers, a goal to nil. And the two teams in 15th and 16th, Sagantosu and Shimizu Espulse, sandwiched in between Sapporo and Sendai here, shared the points with a late goal each in that match. Both of those teams on really bad runs as of late, so both teams probably coming away with a point is useful to them, but arguably both of them could be a little disappointed that they didn't seal three points from this opportunity. The biggest result among these bottom teams, however, was certainly Shonan Belmari. Where did that come from? Shonan hosted high-flying, free-scoring Kashua Reisol and got off to a dream start. Okamoto found the net inside four minutes to give Belmare an early lead. It must have felt like the same old story for those fans inside the stadium, however, when Olunga popped up in the 22nd minute to level the score and Kamiya's goal in the 53rd left the host trailing. Being bottom of the league and a goal behind to a team fielding by far and away the best and most informed striker at the moment currently in Japan, all bets are on Shonan to cave. Step forward messes Matsuda and Nishihara. Two goals in three minutes late in the second half sent those socially distanced fans into wild excitement as against the odds, Shonan pulled off a 3-2 home victory against Reisol. A big, big result for them. And after a really interesting weekend, it sees the bottom group all bunched up tightly now. So there's a very, t- there's a very tense time ahead for those teams then. And if Shonan can seal victory against Tosu in their midweek game, it'll be enough to list them up, lift them up two places and into 16th place. Anyone who has a way to stream football, such as Dazen or DAZN, I'm not sure how you want to pronounce that, I'd recommend watching that Tos- uh, Sagan Tosu against Shonan Belmare game. There's quite a lot riding on that. Quickly then, and another loss for Kobe, who's rather lackluster run of form lately seems contradictory to what's going on in all the excitement around them. Probably the most famous team to those living outside Japan, Kobe have had a pretty middling season so far, and they went down 2-1 to Sanfrice Hiroshima. On that note then, it's time for a break, and in part two we'll have a very quick look at the important points from the J2 and especially a fantastic but very aggressive affair at the Bakari Sweat Stadium that saw the lead change hands. Before we get into this battle at Tokushima then, first let's congratulate Avispa Fukuoka on 12 consecutive victories. Their 1-0 solid display showing us all where they now sit top of the J2 League. 
It wasn't a high-flying result, but grinding out these defensive wins is a sign of a solid team, and Fukuoka look to be really well gelled right now. Tokushima, however, will be furious at how they lost the lead in their 1-0 defeat to Kofu, if that makes sense. Again, if you have Dazen, or if you just want to watch the highlights instead on, uh, on YouTube, on the J-League YouTube channel, I'd recommend just take a few minutes to watch the highlights from this game. From start to finish, this was a masterclass of tactics and shithousery from Kofu that never let Tokushima feel comfortable. Sorry, I'm shithousery is a term that gets banded around in UK football a lot. I'm not sure if it's made the leap outside the UK, but I can't think of a better way to describe this. I would absolutely hate to play this Kofu team. As a neutral, I was sat in the crowd watching this, and I quickly began to dislike Kofu. And if that was how it felt for me, I can't imagine the frustration of the players and that Vortis bench. To give you an idea of what I mean, the closest I can really come to describing it is like a typical Atletico Madrid performance under Simeone. That might be a stretch, I know, and Kofu are nowhere near the quality of that team, but the underlying impression was there. First, from the very first whistle, Kofu were on it. They played a really high pressing game, putting constant pressure on Vortis. And Tokushima are a team that are obsessed with playing out from the back. Whenever they have a goal kick, it's almost always played sideways to a player standing six yards off the byline. And week in, week out, Tokushima skirt with danger around their own box. Now they have the skill to do it. And it's something they've really improved on, building up slow and progressive play. And it's a really nice style to watch. And when it works out, it's fantastic. It was clear from the off, though, that Kofu knew this and it was their plan to force mistakes. Number 11 in particular, Izumisawa, was relentless. Almost Douglas Costa-esque. He was clicking at the heels of the Vortis players constantly. He was committing big sliding challenges, winning the ball back for his team before then driving forward again. He was in the face of not only the opposition, but also the referee, which is really important with what happened later on. He was always making himself heard, and it really rattled that Vortis defence. This was something that could be said about the entire Kofu team, to be honest. I've been to a lot of games this season, which is quite lucky, but I've been to a lot of games and have seen interesting ways that teams choose to communicate. Some teams are very quiet, others relying only on the managers on the sideline, and even one team who commandeered the fourth official's display board and regularly held up numbers that clearly had significance to the players. This allowed them to spot the numbers on display and shift tactics accordingly. That was uh, J3's Mito Hollyhock, Mito Hollyhock, by the way, and I thought it was a really good idea. It was really well executed. Kofu, however, are by far and away the loudest team I have ever heard. Everyone was shouting, 90 minutes, non-stop yelling, all over the pitch from the bench as well. It was a performance full of adrenaline and most of all, aggression. It was a really violent display of we're here to win. Combining this aggression with this high press and intense running from players, it was a fantastic battle between two teams of opposing styles. The first major piece of controversy came late in the first half, though, when it looked, despite all of the noise and all of the, uh, all of the gesturing from Kofu, 
It looked like Tokushima's skill on the ball and quick passing had come up trumps. A ball floated across the box and was heading it, headed in at the back post. It was declared a goal. The ball was put back on the centre spot and the teams quickly got in formation ready for the kickoff. The Kofu bench, however, and a couple of players from the, uh, from the defence at the time were screaming relentlessly at the referee and at the linesman, really into their face. It was to the point where anything extra would surely have meant a card or disciplinary for Kofu, the manager in particular, and his assistant. For the neutral sitting there, it was the type of stuff you see at um, you see at kids' Sunday league matches, you know, where one of the parents takes it far too seriously. For all of this aggression, though, there was a reason. The man behind the jumbo screen in the stadium was playing replay after replay after replay of the Tokushima goal, and suddenly, clear as day for the entire stadium to see, it was offside. Another replay, another angle, more confirmation. As the stadium spectators went deathly quiet, hoping the referee wouldn't look, he finally glanced over and saw the error that had been made. A quick decision with the linesman, more pressure from the away team, and the goal was cancelled. This moment could have huge implications on this league. Not only did it knock Tokushima off the top spot, but the referee here effectively used his own version of VAR in a league where VAR is not available. This would not have happened with any team but Kofu, I feel like. Even their Twitter account afterwards was using the term hashtag aggressive in big capital letters before and after the game. This was their plan all along and their aggression culminated in an unprecedented turnover of a decision. Understandably, Tokushima were then furious and felt aggrieved by what was ultimately a correct decision, but one that was made in an incorrect manner. Entertainingly, the only people in the stadium who didn't know what was happening were the travelling Kofu fans. They were dumped in the worst seats and probably the only seats around that couldn't see the screen. But what should the referee have done? In that situation, then, what should he do? Refuse to look or watch, but conclude that since VAR is not applicable yet, that the decision must stand? Was he right to overturn it? It's, It's a really tricky call, and now we have to wait and see what the league will decide from now. One thing is for sure, though, whoever is in charge of playing the goal replays on the big screen probably left the stadium that night quickly and quietly. Tokushima's own celebration was ultimately their undoing. Immediately after this, then, was half-time. Or it should have been. But the referee added a huge amount of extra minutes on. I think he panicked. Like It was to the point where I could see the fourth official looking at his watch and panicking himself, gesturing. He was desperate for the referee to realise that it was 54 minutes and still playing. Desperate for him to blow his whistle. The panic had clearly set in amongst the officials, but at last it was half-time. A chance for Tokushima then to reset. The, to- uh, the second half was much of the same then, a game of chess between free-flowing, fast-passing Tokushima and aggressive, high-pressing Kofu, the latter of which should have been down to 10 men, as defender Imazu was very, very lucky to escape a second yellow card for a cynical pullback as Tokushima raced through. At any other point, that would have been a yellow card, and it adds another reason for Tokushima to feel aggrieved. The worst was yet to come, however. On a day where they could have been a goal up and playing against 10 men, Tokushima found themselves a goal behind against 11 men, who never stopped working and would seamless, seemingly refuse to tire. Now, Kofu were not without their flaws on the day. 
A late free kick awarded to Kofu pushed the attitude of some players a little too far. And finally, the referee plucked up his courage and stood up to the rabble. A red card for Kofu, despite the decision going in their favour. It evened the odds and made for a dramatic end with Tokushima just peppering the Kofu box with balls flown in. At least for a while anyway. And then the last, you know, four or five minutes, you could see the crowd getting frustrated. There were groans and panicked shouts as Tokushima just found themselves suddenly passing sideways and backwards, despite their opponents being in reduced numbers and sitting back. This was really frustrating for the fans, because I know where Tokushima shine is in their skillful build-up play from the back, this really fell down and what they needed was to kind of brute force their way back into into contention. And they were found lacking. They couldn't break out of their traditional style again. As a neutral at this game, I found myself shouting, you know, get it in the box, play it forward, because another pass went back to the keeper. They really had no plan B to deal with Kofu. So lots for Tokushima to think about in this match and... Although they were hard done by and will be uh, very unlucky to face another team as outrageously aggressive and disruptive as Kofu this season, they can only look at themselves and think how they allowed their opponents to get under their skin and how they failed to adapt when needed. The leaders now move down then to second and will need to bounce back from this quickly. That was a long review done of that game, uh, but I urge all of you, if you're interested, to give it a watch if you can. It's an unusual game that you don't often see in Japan here, especially two sides so totally contrasting in styles. So all that's left to say is well done to Kofu, you magnificent angry gits, and that'll do for this section. After the break, a quick discussion about the good news coming out of women's football in Japan lately, and then we'll round up the pod. The last part of the podcast then today and Japan women's football now. This week we're treated to more information about next season's first official league, the Women's Empowerment League and the 11 clubs that will make up the table. In autumn next year, the inaugural season of Women's Empowerment League will kick off with 11 founding clubs. Originally, we only suspected about six or seven clubs potentially would make up the league. So having as many as 11 is quite exciting and a bit of a surprise. Apparently 17 clubs applied for the spaces and decisions were made based on enthusiasm for the league's vision, financial resources and the ability to secure professional tier facilities. This is great because it means that in securing facilities, the women's team will be given high quality pitches and training facilities along with staff and helping them to further develop their squads. And this is a big step forward for football in Japan. Also nice to hear is that eventually there will be a requirement that women make up 50% of the staff for each organisation and at least one woman must be installed on their board of directors. If you're living in Japan like me, you'll know how difficult it is for women to break through some of the ceilings here and it's still a bit of an old boys club in truth. Having this eventual requirement should be more of a should be a move in a positive direction, I think, especially in the relatively heavy male-dominated world of professional sports. And this isn't just a, a quota thing either, as I can foresee that argument being put forward. The JFA have actually started a women's leadership program specifically to address the imbalance 
and to work on getting women into leadership positions. Another point that was made is the enthusiasm for foreign players to play in Japan also. The league is seen as a chance to tempt across high-quality players to help improve Japan's domestic football and make them more competitive on the world stage too. Lots of work to do then, but lots of positives to take from this so far. So let's hope it can really grow in the next few years. One club in particular, Hiroshima, seem particularly interested in developing their women's team as of late and announced they will quickly establish a women's academy system in an effort to establish Hiroshima in particular as one of Japan's best homegrown clubs. I'm excited to see what develops here and we'll be sure to keep an eye on any news going forward so I can keep you up to date. Quickly then, I should say that the teams will be NTV Tokyo Verdi, uh, the current reigning champs, Urawa Reds, ladies, who are the current leaders. You then got Niigata, Jeff United, Chiba. Uh, you then got Nagano, Vegalta Sendai, ladies. Uh, Omiya Hadija, who will absorb J-League club Jumonji Ventus in order to do so. Sorry for butchering those names. Sanfri Hiroshima, you've got Kobe Leonessa, Nojima Stella Kanagawa, uh, Sagamihara, and Saitama as well, I believe. There's still more details to come out about that, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, the league will effectively become the top professional league here, with current uh, Nadashiko League becoming Division 2. However, importantly, there will be no relegation or promotion, at least for the time being. It will start in autumn 2021 and it will run until springtime. Each club will also have two bye weeks where they will not have any games, but they'll be expected to treat that time uh, to run activities and promote the league's principles. Time will tell what that really means and what clubs can do with it. Something interesting is that northern clubs such as Sendai and Nagano, whose winter weather is really severe and may cause an issue with fixtures, they are actually potentially going to play in neutral venues across Japan. And they're going to be part of an effort to promote football in areas without established women's teams. It still sounds like there's a lot to be ironed out. However, the framework is there though. The framework is coming along and it's great to see Japan putting out strong signals of their intentions for women's soccer. Especially with such an exciting and well-respected international team, this could really help propel them on the world stage in future. Whew, that's a long one this week then, and uh, well done if you're still listening. This is uh, a long time to listen to one person rambling on about football, so let's call it a day. There's not as much midweek action this time, but plenty to look forward to still. As always, if you'd like to get in touch or if there's anything you want me to discuss in particular on upcoming podcasts, get in touch at japansoccerweekly at gmail.com and I'll be happy to take a look. Have a great week then everyone, please stay safe and I'll be back next week on Japan Soccer Weekly.